When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're talking about a pretty controversial subject. Um, Can you trust a fat doctor? Yeah, um, there's a surprising amount of clinical literature published on this topic. There's things like uh, fat bias, fat phobia. There's different scales that have been published, one from Yale, which we will take later and see how we score. Um, And there's a kind of a dichotomy of two sides, one that is pro-health at any body composition, because to some degree there might be health at any size, but certainly not health at any body composition. And then on the other end, um, there's a a backlash of forces that um, are kind of like a a caricature of um, the toxic gym movement, if you will. Yeah, there's definitely two extremes to it. And I think it depends on the story that you tell around it. So um, certainly there's some patients that are going to relate better to, uh, say, normal body fat percentage, healthy body fat percentage, physician or nurse practitioner. And there's some patients that are just not going to connect with that person. They're going to say, well, you know, they don't understand. So, you know, I'm not going to listen to anything they say. So it's not 100% one way or the other. Um, But when it comes to storytelling, Um, A great example of this, someone who used to be probably by BMI standards obese, um, but is now in great shape, uh, Dr. Sean Baker, who is a sort of internet famous uh, celebrity physician, I guess you would call him at this point. Uh, I believe he was an orthopod power lifter at one point. Um, Mm. And this is something that he posted on his Instagram or, or Twitter, I believe. So age 31, 300 pounds, fat, swollen and crushing the carbs that's what he says and then he posts a picture of himself now at age 56 250 pounds lean fit and carnivore so it's hard to argue that he didn't improve his health um, but carnivore is not the only route to improving your health and that's where someone's individual story kind of gets presented as the only solution. You see this in people that do keto or people that go low fat, carnivore being another example. There's many paths to the same end. Yeah, my takeaway from this is that uh, you should find a dietary strategy where you shouldn't overconsume calories and you should consistently exercise for many decades and you can preserve health into older age. Yeah, and this is also interesting, kind of a side note, but we've talked about, you know, he has published a calcium score of his that was zero. um, And I think attributed that to the carnivore diet. But I would say that it is zero, like, in spite of that. Um, Because if you look at his previous metabolic health picture, that doesn't seem conducive to not developing any coronary atherosclerosis. I don't believe he's done a CCTA at this point. Yeah. But it, it points to maybe there's some sort of, you know, genetic luck or protective effect or just the results of never not exercising 
that have been relatively good to his coronaries as far as we know. Yeah, he's an MD, so he is a medical doctor, and he's probably familiar with the difference between calcified plaque and uncalcified plaque. Uncalcified plaque um, is more likely to be unstable plaque of very low density. Um, so he should probably, you know, if I was in his shoes, I would type in clearlyhealth.com, uh, clearly spelled with two E's, and find a location where I can get a uh, coronary angiography and see if I have any unstable plaque or uncalcified plaque that would be invisible on a calcium score. Dr. I believe it's Dr. Agustin, who was um, who, who invented the scoring mm. method for calcium scoring, has uh, spoken about this multiple times and how they can be used in concert. So that's a good thing to think about. The other thing that I think about when I see him is it's interesting to see how his hair growth patterns have changed over time as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that the chest hair disappeared. So uh, I don't know if it's that there's a correlation with people who happen to be at a leaner body fat percentage and then they uh, get rid of the body hair to better showcase the musculature or Could if be. it just fell out from too many birthdays. Yeah, or a low, low testosterone, low hormone profile. You can be extremely fit and still perform well athletically with low normal testosterone. You might not feel quite the same as you would with higher testosterone, but you can still perform well in, uh, in some areas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then here's a, I believe what we referred to as a, a straw man argument that he mm. posted on his social media picture of a, uh, obese physician who is captioned with saying, I recommend you cut back on red meat. So would you trust this guy for weight loss advice? And then second question, would you trust this guy for hair loss advice? <laughs> yeah. Um, for weight loss advice, um, I would ask myself a few different questions. What's this individual's history? Um, perhaps he used to be much more obese than he actually is. There is a slim chance, one in a million, that he has a genetic cause of obesity, of hyperphagia or Bardet beetle syndrome. And maybe that's why he went into obesity medicine. That being said, that's probably not the case. And I uh, frankly probably wouldn't trust that individual as much for um, uh, especially exercise advice, but probably not diet advice. And then the straw man argument, of course, would be that all doctors tell you to cut back on red meat, um, whereas uh, at least physicians who are recently trained are trained to, uh, especially if they're trained in obesity medicine, to cut back on the calories um, that you intake and increase the calories that you expend. Yeah, so it's a, yeah, this physician may provide you the accurate advice. Hey, you need to uh, exercise more and eat less, you know, come back and see me in six months. Or maybe they prescribe you a medication for weight loss. But it's not necessarily incorrect information. It's just going to be the patient's perception of the, the value and the quality of that information. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who regularly exercises, um, you may open a dialogue for, with the patient where it's like, well, you know, well, well, what do you do? And I think that's an okay situation. You don't yeah. want to impose your personal lifestyle, exercise habits, diet, supplements, everything like that on a patient. But you can give examples of, well, I do this and some people like to do this. There's a lot of different ways to do it. It's about finding something that you enjoy or, you know, finding the least bad option. So, you know, if I go tell everyone to go run hill sprints, um, 
some people are going to get healthier from that. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are going to hate it and quit, and some people are going to get injured. So I don't tend to recommend hill sprints universally, even though it's a way to increase calorie expenditure. So it should work for weight loss. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're trying to say that individualized medicine and having uh, each unique person have their own regimen is superior, but it doesn't make sense because when you go outside of our evil conventional health system that goes through insurance, <laughs> is it 98% of that just healthcare providers imposing their exact algorithm that worked for them and the exact medications and supplements that worked for them on all of their patients? If there was a Venn diagram of providers outside of the traditional healthcare system and healthcare providers that are imposing what worked for them on patients, it wouldn't be a perfect circle, but it would be pretty close. Mm -hmm. If you go to your endocrinologist and they happen to be a type 1 diabetic, you'll probably be put on the same regimen that he or she is on. If you go to a men's health clinic or a urologist and you happen to be put on a regimen, you're probably on the same regimen that he is on or she if it's a women's health clinic. Mm -hmm. If it's an OB-GYN that uh, previously was very against hormone replacement therapy and she went through menopause or he went through andropause, let's be fair, fair here. Sure. And uh, they leave the hospital system and their group that they're working with and they start a regimen, you'll probably be prescribed what he or what she is on. And I'm not saying this to be negative. It's just a fact. We see this all the time. Yeah. And people build multi-million dollar health systems strictly around the carnivore diet or X supplement or intermittent fasting. And there's really no secret. They just tell people to do this one thing and it's going to work for them. And for some people, that's a positive catalyst and they do become healthier. For other people, it doesn't work and they don't stay plugged into that system, yeah. I imagine. It's like a fake natty equivalent of it being a healthcare provider. To be a fitness influencer, you take a bunch of steroids or SARMs and you tell people it's this program, just buy my program and you need to do this meso cycle and deload like this, and then you'll look like me. But in healthcare, they say, well, you need to buy my diet program, but in reality, you should be getting their exercise program because that's what's really giving the results. Is that why people say that eating healthy is expensive because you have to pay for an expensive diet program before you even get any food? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and in some ways, and it's not eating healthy that's expensive, but it might be shopping at Whole Foods that's expensive, especially if you're buying processed foods at Whole Foods. Well, I buy my legumes from Trader Joe's and they're less than $4 for, a, I, I think it's at least a pound of pre-cooked legumes. So it's mm -hmm. convenient. Just because it is processed and pre-cooked and ready to eat doesn't mean that it's necessarily unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and we've done a podcast on this before. So see our previous podcast about the different costs of foods. People know that I like to go to Aldi and I like to eat potatoes, spinach, Greek yogurt from there. Absolutely. Now, I guess we can hit some statistics here. Um, as far as physicians and nurses, the incidence of overweight and obesity it was really hard to find a delineation in overweight and obesity in nurses, figures anywhere from 50 to 55, all the way up to 65% of nurses being overweight. And then 44% of physicians overweight, 6% obese. Um, you thought maybe the obesity figure was a bit low there? Yeah, the 6% obesity was shockingly low. 
So uh-huh. in in general, there, I guess you have your general population, and you have nurses that are a bit less overweight, and then you have physicians that are slightly less overweight than that. So if you go you know, mm-hmm. from like seventy percent to sixty percent to about forty five percent being overweight. Um, or obese, I guess you could call that 50% if you add the two together there, then you start to get slightly less unhealthy, but it is still kind of an alarming statistic. You know, you think that 70% of the uh, population being overweight or obese sounds bad, and then you realize that, you know, over 50% of the people charged with fixing that problem in the medical establishment are struggling with the same issue that they know the solution to. I would argue that most of the population, most nurses, most doctors, yeah, it's not for not knowing what they should do. It's just the follow through that is difficult. Yeah. Um, and easier said than done. As always, people know that I have talked about uh, my various interactions with weight during residency, during um, lots of night shifts, uh, unlimited cafeteria food. Even though I naturally eat very low carb, it was still pretty easy for me to pack on some extra body fat. And my journey using uh, lifestyle intervention to um, help recover from that. Uh, But uh, all that aside, the 6% obese uh, prevalence in physicians was a little surprising. I'd like to see this, the number of both overweight and obese physicians in medical school, residency, the first half of their practice, the last years of their practice and after they retire as well. Because you'd think with this knowledge in extenuating circumstances and long shifts, uh, perhaps at the end of medical school or during residency, that you would see a spike in obesity and being overweight, as I'm sure um, if we did that study, I'm sure you would see that. Um, It would be very easy to do that because in general, your lifestyle is the worst. You're exercising the least, you're eating the worst, you're sleeping not very well, your social connection might be um, very strained. And then over the career, you would expect to see that go down, but I'm sure that's not what happens. Because it's nearly a decade of medical education, you should have all the knowledge and tools to sort of dig yourself out of that situation. Um, And even in normal university college students, you see they call the freshman 15, it it might be the freshman 20 now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what the figures are. It was the freshman 15 back when I was entering college. And I imagine that would be even more exaggerated if you have a more strenuous program, uh, one that's more time intensive, um, one that, you know, like a residency, which is extremely time intensive. And I think a lot of uh, these individuals actually could and should go check out our friend, Dr. Taylor Martin on Instagram, who did a post on how to get in some resistance training using common equipment found in hospitals. I think there was a, a walker featured there for some dips, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a very cool post and something that I, I didn't think of at all when I was working in the hospital for, you know, many years in the past. Um, but there was equipment all around me that I could have made use of. Yeah, uh, very underrated post. I know during my residency, some of my uh, fellow residents brought some gym equipment to one of the resident sleep rooms. I'll have to post a picture from that too. I think I can dig some Gym up. equipment. Is this a, are we talking about a, a bench, a leg some press, dumbbells, an incline bench, a, a treadmill, which I did. Dips hopefully on. it was incline. Um, the bench did incline. 
Excellent. It did. <laughs> there was no CrossFit equipment. So for the CrossFitters out there oh. that listen to our podcast, <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to continue to be fit other than dips and handstand pushups. Of okay. course. Yep. Yeah. Don't need a lot of equipment to do those. Um, but I, I guess we dive into some of the data now. So we found two conflicting studies on not, and this is actually the contrary to the bulk of the data. The bulk of the data is looking at how do physicians or nurse practitioners perceive their patients by BMI? You know, uh, weight stigma and, you know, you can't blame every medical problem that a patient has on weight, even if it's easy to do, because um, that's going to lead to misdiagnoses yes. and that's a bad outcome for the patient. That's where the bulk of the research is focused. But we found two studies which are on opposing sides. And one of these studies found that patients were allegedly more likely to trust weight loss advice from an overweight physician. And the other study found just the opposite. So we couldn't find a supplementary data file for the first study, but they had participants basically look at a obesity pictogram and classify their physicians on that pictogram. So we don't know what this looked like, um, but it sounds like a foolproof research method to me. Let's take a look at a pictogram. And this specifically, I don't think included um, weights. So, you know, this basically just tells you BMI and shows a picture of what this individual might look like. Yep. And so, there was five categories in the study, I believe. Um, perhaps these were the exact images or pictograms they used. Um, but it, it just, I can't hardly even imagine telling a patient, go to your doctor, but keep in mind, you're going to have to rate him or her according to this pictogram scale afterward. Yeah, imagine if your doctor saw you holding up this pictogram, looking at them, looking at the pictogram. Maybe you draw a little stethoscope on the one that you think looks like them. Yeah. Just so you can tell, because none of these have stethoscopes, so it's, it'd be kind of hard to tell what your doctor looks like. Uh, I, I guess so. Where would you be or where would I be on the pictogram? Um, if I would be a separate figure off to the right, um, one that has the waist that's a little bit similar to the the green, yeah. the, the normal BMI, but with shoulders that are similar to the overweight BMI. Hmm. So if somebody did look like that, then the patient, depending on what they looked like, could put them in either category. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you so see your doctor's shoulders or do you see their waist? Uh, usually both, <laughs> I guess that might be a trick question, but I guess, um, the point that we're trying to make here, um, or the point that we're implying is that if there is a, um, a physician that is a gym rat that might be a little bit heavier then the patient very well might be putting them in one of the pictograms that's further to the right. And that would certainly confound the results because the the idea behind this is um, if the uh, physician is a of a high body fat percentage, that's what it's trying to get at. Yeah, and body fat is a more sensitive metric than the BMI. And actually, yourself and myself today, we actually punched in our BMIs and we came yeah. up uh, identical, at least identical in the sense of after a heavy set of squats, our height and weight came out to a 27.4 BMI. Mm -hmm. So we are considered overweight, an overweight physician and an overweight nurse practitioner. And if you're in study number one, you trust us less. 
No. If you're in study number one, you trust, you trust us, us more. more. In study, study number, number two, you trust us less. So there was two studies and they had polar opposite results. How could that happen? You just go to IamRight.com and find a study that supports your claim. Yeah, uh, that's what uh, most internet <laughs> arguments are. And you don't even need to post the link to the study. You just post the PMID. As long as there's those PMID numbers, then it's just like a check mark. Ooh, that makes it more work for people to fact check you because then they can't just click the hyperlink. Yeah, I guess on Instagram and that's useful. But uh, yeah, our point here is that uh, if you, you have to dig into the study design, you can't just post the study. And if you pull up a PubMed or a Google Scholar article, you read the conclusion, it's like, boosh, take that. Um, that's not really the point. Yeah, it, the more literature that I've dug through, the less time I spend reading the conclusion and the more time I'm looking at the materials and methods and results. Yeah. So the boring stuff. Yeah. In fact, um, finding this pictogram info, we were joking with each other. Well, what did, what did this first study do? <laughs> did, they have, did they have the patient rank how fat the doctor is based on a caricature? And they literally did. Yeah. Uh, reality is Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. is funny sometimes. Um, I guess to go over study number two, uh, this is the one that found higher mistrust of overweight physicians. Um, basically, it was like a sliding scale. The more overweight the physician was, the more mistrust, the less inclined to follow medical advice, and the more likely to change providers um, these patients were, depending on the providers. And I, I think this one used BMI as well. Uh, I couldn't find the full materials and methods, but and we'll post these links in the description. Mm -hmm. um, so this one kind of made more sense to me because people who are looking at this, you know, objectively um, and with the, you know, there is a real like a, a stigma against overweight and obesity out there. You know, it, it would be ludicrous to say that no one can tell, no one pays attention to these things because people do. People choose their mates based on these things to some degree. So it would be kind of silly to just ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Uh, but the interesting part about this is they had a fat phobia module or quiz to establish weight bias and to see how that affected things. And they saw that the higher someone's fat phobia score was, the more bias they had towards overweight or obese physicians. So uh, I figured we could go through and take this fat phobia test to figure out how fat phobic we are. Yeah. So since you and I are both technically overweight, are we evaluating each other? Or I could even go so far and say, uh, since my wife's BMI, even though she's 20% body fat, is in the overweight category, um, am I evaluating her when I fill out this? Well, this says, <clears throat> listed below are 14 pairs of adjectives sometimes used to describe obese or fat people. For each adjective, please place an X on the line closest to the adjective that you feel best describes your feelings and beliefs. So obese and fat, I, 
when I think of that, I'm thinking of an objectively unhealthy person, which is what you're going to have, you know, 99% of the people that are in the obese category. So we were talking about rough percentages and what do we decide on for, you know, men and women is like a very clear, like, you know, 100% of these people are going to benefit from reducing that body fat percent. Over 35% body fat for females and over 25% body fat for males. And there's no reason why this um, fat phobia tool from Yale shouldn't say for those who know that would like fat would be considered a body fat over 35% for females, over 25% of males. And then they might as well provide a caricature here. It's better than nothing rather than leaving it fat up to complete subjective interpretation. Most people probably imagine someone who is morbidly obese from my 600 pound life when they're filling <laughs> out this tool. There's a huge yeah. difference. If I imagine you or my wife or myself while I fill out this tool, I will fill it out one way. And if I imagine someone from um, my 600 pound life or the um, one of the TV shows, the reality television, it's a completely different way. Yeah, I mean, you could have a caricature that is in a vehicle in a drive-through at a fast food restaurant, or you could have a caricature wearing a suit in a courtroom, which you're not really going to be able to gauge someone's BMI mm -hmm. super well if they're wearing a suit. So they should just have a picture of Kyriakos Grizzly <laughs> looking at you like that. <laughs> He's definitely not lazy, that's for sure, and that's what the first item is. Yeah. So the first one is lazy versus industrious. The second word I think is going to be a challenge for the general population when you look at the average literacy and, and reading level. Um, but for those of us that know what that means, I'm going to put this as a three because I'm pretty neutral. I feel that you can't really tell how lazy or hardworking someone is just by looking at their weight because some people may work harder on their physique. Some mm -hmm. people may work harder on their career. I really don't think you can tell that just from someone's weight or body fat percent. Yeah, I'm a three for that one, and I'm a three for the next one as well, which is willpower versus no willpower. What about three? It starts to get a little spicy here. Yeah. Attractive versus unattractive. If it's Kiriakos Grizzly or myself or you or my wife, I would give uh, them a five for very attractive. But if it's someone um, that's morbidly obese, then probably a two or a one. Yeah, I'm going to pick a two because attractiveness is about more than just a body fat percentage. There are facial characteristics and body shape characteristics that play into attractiveness. Just, you know, subjectively, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm going to give that one a two. So I, I suspect that nudges my fat phobia score up a bit. Mm -hmm. Next is self-control. Good versus poor self-control. I'd put a three for this as well. This is kind of repetitive when it comes to like, you know, willpower, self-control, lazy. Yeah. And it seems neutral because it's like self-control in what context? If you put self-control over dietary choices, mm -hmm. then you would say, you know, poor self-control. That, that'd be this end of the spectrum I would be more closely on. But just self-control as a character trait, neutral. Maybe this person has incredible patience and a lot of self-control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Next is fast and slow. Um, I assume this means running speed. That's what I would speculate as well. So you've got to put a two or something like that for more slow than fast. I mean, if I'm looking at someone who's, let's say a guy who's 25, 26% body fat, I'm going to have to give that a one. I mean, if they're at 20% body fat, maybe I give them, you know, a two. And then as you move down, you kind of adjust the sliding scale. 
generally the leaner the individual, the faster the individual. I give him a one if it's marathon running. If it is uh, a 40, quickly, 40 yard dash, quickly going from um, like getting out of your seat and running out of a burning house, give it a two. Okay. Next on the list is having endurance or having no endurance. And we were just chatting about running and maybe they clustered these two together because you think fast, slow, do they run fast or run slow? Uh, do they have endurance or have no endurance? So as you mentioned, you know, someone with a good 40 yard dash time mm-hmm. may not have a good marathon time, for example. Yes. So the endurance, I'm gonna have to give that a one. Yeah, for marathon running, I would give it a one. Uh, again, imagining someone from my 600 pound life. Um, however, if it's for doing some light cardio or if coding, it's, if it's Brian Shaw pushing uh, a, a sled, strong man, yeah, yeah, um, or Kiriakos Grizzly pushing a sled, then maybe it's a five. Um, but for for what I think the intent of the uh, purposes of this questionnaire. It's got to be a one. It's yeah. running a marathon. Yeah, I mean, endurance just has connotations of exercise with it. Like, I think that's the logical, like, if you played the game where it's like, I'm going to say a word and you think of a, a word associated with that word, say endurance, yes. like, oh, exercise, running, like, those would be your numbers you would see. Yes. So instead of endurance or having no endurance, um, it would be rate how good uh, someone who is morbidly obese with more than... Uh, like let's say 50% body fat at running a marathon. So that's a one. Yeah. Next we have active versus inactive. Um, so it, this is again, really hard to be anything other than physical activity is what comes into my mind. Maybe they're talking about active in the church, active socially, but probably I, not. I don't think so. Activity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I gave this a three actually. Um, it does not specify the um, zone of the activity. It could just be that they uh, walk or they dance or they do something that does not burn a whole lot of calories. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would be a little bit more likely to put a two here. Um, Let's call it a two and a half because in general you'll see kind of an association, like if I'm looking at step count, which is a pretty good surrogate for physical activity who's classified as sedentary versus active. And you'll see more people that are classified as sedentary in the obese category. So I would probably rate this one a two. Next is weak versus strong. This one is interesting. I think I would actually rate them stronger rather than weaker. Maybe I don't rate it a one, but a two, because they're not strong men, but they are strong men and women. Everything else being equal, um, weight moves weight. So I would say that's uh, two means stronger. They kind of switched the numbers. So two is, a, I guess, a better score now instead yeah. of four. Two makes you less uh, fat phobic. Right below that, we have self-indulgent versus self-sacrificing. And this is going to be a three for me. Three. You really yep. can't tell what people are sacrificing either financially or in their work-life balance for their families. Um, and I think what they want people to do, and they, they clustered this one, you'll see when you get to the next one, right above the question about food. So they want people to make that jump from, oh, they, they indulge in food. But if just 
you look at self-indulgent versus self-sacrifice by itself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to rate it neutral. Can't tell about a person just by their body fat percentage. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. Three for that. Um, next one is liking and disliking food. Uh, liking and disliking. I'm, I'm tempted to put a three here because it's specifically about liking food. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people who enjoy food. Yeah, and I, I think of the different subtypes of obesity here. So this is also debated. You have obesity physicians out there that will say that you can't say that someone stress eats because that's discriminating and that's not true and it doesn't happen. But when you look at some of the scientific literature and the research that PhDs are doing, I think it's about 30% of people that have obesity endorse like eating as a coping mechanism. And they don't do that because they like food. They do that because it makes them feel better. So this one is almost too simple for a very nuanced subject. Yeah. Um, the next one is shapely versus shapeless. And uh, uh, I don't really know what shapely means in the context of aesthetics. Does that mean that they have, they look more like a certain shape, like a triangle or an hourglass or a square or a pear? Uh, I just put a three for this. Yeah, it just seems like the same question as, you know, attractiveness. Uh, then if, it's if they're trying to frame we don't as, need another one then. Yeah, yeah. A bit redundant. And then undereats versus overeats. Uh, I think objectively anyone can say that someone who is obese is going to have a tendency to overeat. So I'm going to pick a one here. Yeah, I would definitely say more of a uh, predisposition to overeat rather than be very inactive. Yeah. So more weighted towards... Um, you know, you know what I just too realized. Many calories. If we go back and look, overeating is on the same side as being strong, which is on the same side as being inactive. So these aren't quite making sense to me yeah. as far as their scoring system. Yeah, it's, a, it's odd. In any case, then you have secure, insecure. I rate this one neutral. You can't really tell about someone's competence level based on their body fat percentage. Nope. There are a ton of people out there that are very confident that shouldn't be. And then there are people that should be very confident that aren't in yeah. professional and other areas of their life. Uh, so can't tell it about somebody. Yeah. What's our last one? Same thing for self-esteem. Uh, can't tell with that either. That's neutral. It would be interesting if we repeated this, except instead of for um, obese or fat individuals, we did it for very skinny individuals especially very skinny males, especially young, very skinny males. You're talking about someone who has uh, anorexia or a below normal BMI? A borderline normal BMI without anorexia. Think about, um, let's say, a male between the ages of 16 and 26 that weighs less than 140 pounds. Interesting to see if people are lean phobic. My theory is that people would be more lean phobic than fat phobic, especially if it is young females rating young skinny but non anorexic males on this. Interesting. 
And looking at the key here now, this makes a bit more sense. It says for items 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, and 12, um, score as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then they did the reverse for items 1, 2, 8, 9, 11, 13, 14. So they did mix it up to try and randomize so that you're not like, oh, all the bad ones are on this side, all the good ones are on this side. I am curious what their impression of strong was. So strong is number eight. And number eight um, is the opposite. So rating that is a, a one makes us not fat phobic. Calling a fat person or thinking of a fat person as weak would be fat phobic. So if you're perfectly not fat phobic, that means that you will rate someone who's obese as having the best endurance and being the strongest and being the most active. And, and eating the least food. And eating the least amount of food compared to individuals who are not. So then you're just phobic of everyone else who's not fat. A perfect score should be three instead of one. Yeah. And if you really do get, uh, what would the minimum score would be, what, a 14 if you rated And then you divide them by 14. as every single desirable aspect your score would be a one so you're basically lying because there's no world in which a person with obesity a very high body fat percentage is going to be eating the least food and be the most active so if you get the best score you're cheating on the test or, or cheating yourself cheating other people cognitive dissonance would be what's happening anyways um that's very interesting i still don't know what we have taken away from taking that score. Um, I, I think we could do better. Maybe at some point we put together our own index because it's got somebody came up with this. That this is these questions are not based on. There's not a reference that uh, that came from. They do show the book that they uh, took this from. So this is a reproduced from the International Journey of Journal of Obesity. So I guess if you and I come up with something better, maybe with our colleague, uh, Dr. Martin, then we should publish in that journal. Yeah, it, you could even incorporate something like this. You have the polls that go out every once in a while and the, the social media spaces, the Twitter spaces where it shows uh, an obese person and it says, uh, how many of you think this person is lazy, yada, yada, and then that person's followers will say yes or no, this person's lazy, and then they'll ask the same question, the same person, and say, well, this person's already lost 100 pounds. And then you see very different metrics there. Yep. So context is very important. Um, and you could probably do this with several different caricatures, situations, and you could probably delineate by specifying that these are, you know, work activities or home activities or strictly related to their physical performance capabilities and activity levels and get an idea of how much that you know, objective data about how active and fast someone might be bleeds over into how they are performing at work or, or what you're thinking of this person as a uh, home life person, father, mother, etc. Yeah, exactly. This is this is kind of an esoteric quiz anyway, because the takeaway, uh, it's it's all this time and energy putting into something that's not going to help people, whereas they could be explaining the difference between health at any size versus health at any body composition. They could be talking to um, the 
many males and females, but especially females, that see a number on a scale that they are very healthy and that is a number on a scale that they could actually gain some body fat and still be healthy, where they arbitrarily want that number to be lower. So that is a target that we should say, yes, our, our culture has pushed this in the past or is currently pushing it. Um, and the person who's thinking that is in a way pushing it themselves. So when I think that, um, I just want to say, well, show me the DEXA scan because DEXA scan is, at least as of now, my preferred way to assess body composition. Is that individual 45% body fat or are they 33% body fat? Those are two different scenarios. Yeah, and it'd be nice to see access to DEXA uh, be improved where it's not something that people go and cash pay for. Maybe you just incorporate it into an annual physical or even if you're not getting it every single year, you could still pick up a trend if people are getting this even every other year or mm -hmm. every third year, something like that across a lifespan longitudinally. Mm -hmm. That'll give you some insight into like, is this patient taking action and following the advice to improve their health, improve their body composition, not just being fixated on the number on the scale. If yep. you did a DEXA scan every year, patient wouldn't even have to be put on a scale and look at their weight. Mm -hmm. They could go on a DEXA scan and then you could talk strictly in terms of body composition, weight yep. put aside. Yeah, and to be frank, the majority of my patients um, that have struggled with weight in the past they are better served by doing regular body composition assessments and avoiding the scale completely. Um, it, in many cases, it does more harm than good. And I think we've done podcasts on this before. And I think that in the future, I'll do one with, with Diana, our sports dietitian. Um, but that's just a, a small side note. Yeah. So I think that was a, a pretty good summary and a controversial topic. Uh, again, we have our opinions. Let us know your opinions in the comment section. Let us know which BMI caricature that you would place myself and Dr. Gillette in. We look forward to reading those mm -hmm. responses. Yeah, hopefully the same one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as always, thank you for listening. We appreciate your time. Uh, may God give you health and happiness. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.